Welcome back to One Decision. I'm Helena Humphrey, your guest co-host for this episode. Today, we're heading to Hungary, the EU nation swimming against a tide of unity which has swept much of the bloc since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Prime Minister Viktor Orban appears to be riding high after his re-election for a fourth term in April, in a runoff which observers have called free but not fair. And emboldened, he's putting that power to use, refusing to send weapons to Ukraine or cut off Russian oil and gas, saying his country is just too dependent. But is that dependence also a dance designed to court the favour of President Putin himself? The Hungarian Prime Minister hasn't been shy about taking pages from Putin's political playbook, changing laws to remain in power, stacking the courts with his allies and quashing a free and independent media. And he's ramping up the rhetoric as well. Delivering a speech in Romania last month, Orban said he didn't want Hungary to, in his words, become mixed race, prompting one of his longtime aides to quit, citing Nazi terminology. For Budapest, there is a risk. Brussels has taken note of democratic backslides, starting a process that could cut off the cash altogether if it fails to fight corruption. But is Orban on another quest altogether? a new bid to find allies outside of the European Union, exporting his self-proclaimed liberal democracy further afield. This week, he takes to the stage of the annual Conservative Political Action Conference in Dallas, where he'll deliver a keynote address. So where does all of this leave Hungarians, those opposing Orbán's policies, and even strongman leaders around the world that he might be seeking to inspire? I sat down with Clara Dobrev, who ranks high on that list of the opposition. She's a Hungarian left-wing politician, a member of the European Parliament, and until January, its vice president. And she also decided she was willing to try and go head-to-head with Orban himself, winning the first round of the opposition's primaries. Welcome, Clara Dobrev. Thanks so much for being with us, for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure. I want to start with the news that's got everybody talking right now internationally. Uh, Hungary managing to successfully argue its way out of an embargo on Russian oil imports, saying it can't do without that Russian oil. What does this tell us about your country's place in the world today? Is it closer to the European Union or Russia? I think uh, what the Orban government is doing now is it makes a lot of harm. Uh, not only to Europe, not only for the world peace, but it makes harm to Hungarian average people as well. And I'm sad to say that Hungary and the Orban government is the only government who has uh, taken very, very strong steps and investments in order to be even more Russian-dependent in the last 12 years uh, than uh, independent. So Putin and Orban have... Uh, a very tight, very strong relationship, and Orban is still not going to let let it go, even if it would be an interest of the Hungarian people. Orban had uh, built up a very special relationship to Putin. Uh, unfortunately, we don't know yet, and I really hope that in the next few months or years we will know what is this special relationship about. Because really, as a politician, I cannot tell you any rational, economic rational, uh, or, or any political rationale behind his decisions of weakening uh, the common EU position. Hungary did become uh, the, need, the needed opt-out from this agreement. Hungary did become the needed money in order to transfer uh, the economy uh, towards energy independence. I think he doesn't want to break up with Putin, and we have to know why. 
Is he scared? Where does this special relationship go then? If you say it's not in the economic interest of Hungary, why is Orban trying to apparently placate Vladimir Putin? Uh, Unfortunately, I don't know the exact answer. I can tell you only what we have seen in the last 12 years. All countries around Europe were making investments in order to be independent uh, from the Russian energy sources. And we were financed, actually, those in, uh, investments were financed by the European Union. So it was even very easy to do. Whether it's uh, uh, renovation programs in order to save energy, whether it's wind energy, solar, renew, uh, any kind of renewable energy. And Orban did not use any of these funds in order to uh, limit this independence. On the other hand, uh, he, for example, decided to have a nuclear power plant, even if it's debated whether we need it or not, but without any competition, without any public discussion, he gave it to the Russians. All those investments and public procurements went uh, to the oligarchs, the best friend of Orban, uh, Mr. May Saros, who is actually originally a plumber, but at, uh, in the last 10 years he became the richest man in Hungary for 10 years out of nowhere um, and, and supporting very much the politics of uh, Viktor Orban. So definitely uh, you could see uh, this kind of ties. On the other hand, uh, Orban is uh, an illiberal politician, as he calls himself. But what we have seen is that when a politician decides that he doesn't want to lose the power and becomes an illiberal or a dictator, let's call it. Are you directly calling Prime Minister Orban a dictator there? Yes, definitely. Uh, You have to see that there is no uh, uh, freedom of media in Hungary. Every single step where you go to the jurisdiction, prosecution office, police, education, healthcare, everything is occupied. I mean, we call it dictatorship. We don't have to play or find out new words for it. Let me ask you something else. Let me turn this around then, because Europe right now is on the brink, potentially, of an energy crisis. Potentially this winter, there is uh, the real possibility that Europe could see uh, gas cutoffs. And if instead we see a scenario where Hungary manages to stay relatively warm amid all of this, having managed to keep uh, Russian energy supply. Is there then uh, the possibility that Prime Minister Orban will be buoyed by this in the perception of the Hungarian population that they'll say, this is the man who stood firm and we still have power. Look at the rest of the EU. Look, I'm a member of the European Parliament um, from the Hungarian opposition. And I really see in the last uh, two months how many efforts have the European institutions and the European governments done in order to secure the energy uh, supply of uh, uh, Europe for the next year, to fill up um, the gas reserves, uh, to uh, ensure new ways and diversificate the uh, energy flow with LNG terminals, uh, to make investments much quicker in renewable energy and so on. So what I can tell you now is uh, that it seems that Europe is safe for the next winter. I'm definitely sure that to go along with the rest of Europe is not only on long term, but on short term, a much better policy than joining the Russian Empire. We have been there. It was not good there. Uh, Would you say that the EU is relatively safe? Um, 
the situation is such domestically there in Hungary right now. We've seen Prime Minister Orban declare a wartime state of emergency. We've seen the central bank raising the interest rate. Uh, Orban himself is calling on multinationals to hand over extra profits, citing that ongoing economic crisis, which he says is caused by the war in Ukraine. Is that correct? Which is not correct at all. Orban is leading a very bad uh, uh, economic policy in the last 12 years. And before the election, uh, he has uh, given out tremendous amount of money uh, for, um, uh, for winning the, the election. But what is worse, that the Hungarian economy is very much dependent on the European funds. And so he spent public funds... Yes, a lot. On his election campaign. Billion of dollars, billion of dollars. Public funds, public institutions, public money. But what makes his biggest problem is uh, that the Hungarian economy is very much dependent on European uh, development money, uh, which is a huge amount with recovery facility and with the normal cohesion uh, policy. And Europe is fed up at that moment. European taxpayers are fed up that their money is stolen in Hungary. Because of the Hungarian corruption, Hungary is not getting the European funds. So you mentioned uh, the rule of law um, there. Something I do want to touch on as somebody who's often in Brussels yourself, when he was re-elected, what was the political chatter? What did other EU leaders say to you about the fact that uh, Prime Minister Viktor Orban had managed to secure another term. What was the sense? You know, in a democracy, and I definitely can tell it for the American democracy as well, but in European democracies as well, if a leader is elected for the fourth time with two-third majority, then it's a clear evidence that there is no democracy in this country. Kim Jong-un, Putin, Erdogan, uh, and Lukashenko in Belarus are elected with two-third majority four or five times. Uh, this even gives Orban less legitimacy. We have a long list, and how he is using public services from healthcare to the education uh, in order to campaign for them. He's using, for example, the COVID certificate database for uh, the, where, where people are receiving their shots and they register themselves. And suddenly, they started to receive emails, phone calls. Uh, and messages from Viktor Orban before the election. So he's using everything. I guess this leads me to the question then, if there is the possibility of Hungary leaving the European Union, who are Hungary's friends? Or even who are hung Hungary's friends these days? Because, you know, we seem to see Russia's war in Ukraine driving a wedge. You already mentioned that between Orban and regional governments that he wants sought to unite. We're talking about the Czech Republic, Poland, Slovakia. So who on the world stage then is left in Hungary's corner? I mean, you can really see in his movements that he's always trying to ease the way for Putin. That was what he was doing in the last 12 years, before the war even. There were several times vetoing the uh, European decisions in order to please Putin or even to please sometimes China. Um, he made a lot of investments in Hungary, which were economically absolutely irrational, like a nuclear plant from Russian money, Russian loan, Russian uh, technique, um, just in order to, to have his, uh, this business and have these uh, ties. He even allowed... Um, uh, Russian enterprises like um, so-called um, investment bank, which we call just the spy bank, to have an extraterritory and special um, 
um, immunity in Hungary within the European Union and we really don't know who is going there, who is listening, who is writing and who is reading and what. Uh, and it seems uh, this is the so-called international investment bank, Russian international investment, uh, investment bank, and the Hungarian jurisdiction has no power over it. Everything what is happening now with my country is not in the interest of the country, not in the interest of Hungarian people. It's simply a power game by Orban. On the subject of freedom of the press, according to Reporters Without Borders, the Hungarian state is the only EU member suspected of having arbitrarily monitored journalists using the Pegasus software. Can you speak to these claims? You know, what does Hungary need to do to guarantee press freedom? Well, there's a long list. Uh, and this was just the last, you know, a small drop in the glass uh, uh, that uh, Hungarian independent journalists were um, surveyed by by the Hungarian Secret Service. But Orban started off uh, uh, with his oligarchs to buy out all the independent media and transform them to a propaganda media. In this public media, oppositional journalists cannot appear at all. I have never been asked to be uh, to even for a short interview in the public media. I want to ask about you as part of the opposition and the broader opposition. Have you faced intimidation? Uh, well, um, intimidation, uh, uh, physically intimidation, uh, we face usually when we have public programs. So when I go in a rally, for example, uh, somewhere and we invite uh, our supporters, uh, then uh, in the majority of the cases they are organized uh, groups who are shouting uh, uh, or trying to make a distraction even once uh, uh, one of them uh, took out a weapon but, but uh, thanks God uh, nothing happened uh, so they are trying to push or in, in a public appearance that there is and rebel when we appear somewhere where that do these groups come from are they paid oh by they, are, they are they are paid by fides yes all of them second of all all public politicians we go through a, a very character assassination and of course everywhere personal intimidation is part of the campaigns i don't have to tell you in the united states that this is part of it but this kind of systematic assassinations character ass uh, assassinations these are absolutely ridiculous uh, I have started at least, uh, not only me, but the other opposition and politicians, but I myself, around 45 or 60 different cases when there was lie about myself, about my family in the public media or in the Fidesz media. And at the end, I won all of them. But Fidesz didn't have to pay. Clara, you said something, though, that nevertheless was quite disturbing. And you said that at one rally, there was an incident where uh, there was someone there with a weapon. Tell us more about that situation. What was the weapon? And did you believe at that time? And do you believe that your life could be at risk through your job? I was on the stage, so I couldn't even see just the police when, when they came in. Um, it was one of the supporters of Fidesz who pulled out a gun, which at the end uh, occurred to be a so-called gas, I think, gas gun, so where you can make injuries, but he's using all his tools for it. Um, and uh, not talking about our politics, but talking about us as, as traitors, as the ones who are not... Uh, working in the interest of Hungarian people or Hungary. So I want to ask you then, personally, are there conversations that you have at home with your husband where you say, 
if this climate deteriorates, is there a moment when we leave this or we leave even Hungary? Have you ever had that conversation? No. No, never. And no way that I'm going to have it. I have five children. No way that I'm going to let Orban to make a country out of my homeland where those children cannot live in peace with millions of others. Um, I'm, I'm very passionate. I'm very devoted. And uh, what I can tell you, I'll never give up. Talking about the direction that Hungary is going in. Let's touch on CPAC then, which is something very relevant to the United States, because the American Conservative Union decided to hold one of its conservative political action conference gatherings in Hungary in May. Um, it hosted Donald Trump um, and also the controversial Hungarian media figure Zolt Bayer, who has made openly racist comments. Do you know how this gathering came about? Do you know whether there are financial ties with CPAC there? I don't know. We can we can hear, but it's interesting. Vice versa, that some, sometimes Orban is financing from Hungarian public money uh, uh, um, a lot of radical right movements. Not only in America, for example, what came out openly that um, he has financed the campaign of Le Pen against uh, President Macron. But because that's all, you, you ask, who are his friends? These are his friends. No one else is left. The far right in Germany, the AfD the CPAC in the United States, Le Pen in France. But what I would love to say uh, to those uh, Republicans uh, who might believe uh, that, that uh, Orban is doing well, just look how Hungarian democracy looks like. Do you think really that for the United States that's the way that Orban's best friends and family members became for 10 years the richest man in the country, that Orban is killing the freedom, freedom, that Orban is occupying the prosecution, that Orban is killing all kinds of civil organizations. This is the example, and I'm definitely sure that, that the majority of American Republicans would say, no, this is definitely not the way uh, and not the example. But we should they, they, might, they might not like that example, but they might not look at the picture in Hungary. All they might see is a strongman leader who, as you say, has uh, now got his fourth term in power and say, you know what, he must be doing something right. And that brings me to the question, you know, is there the risk that Orban's re-election actually means that Trump, having a no, Trump has the potential to come back into office? Well, I think when you when you say that Orban is doing something right when he won the election for the fourth time, then I have I'm not to saying tell, ethically. Yeah, no, no. But if, if someone is saying yes, then I have, have to tell her or him that, well, the price is democracy. Even if someone would like his nationalistic, homophobic, racist slogans, should never forget that you can build a policy like Orban only in a dictatorship. Do you want your home country to become a dictatorship or not? That's the question that every Republican has to raise. Well, talking about you personally, you were set to go toe-to-toe with Orban, winning in the first round of primaries as a candidate and then beaten by Conservative candidate Marquise. Um, you were also the former First Lady of Hungary and uh, your husband as Prime Minister resigned in 2009 in the wake of an economic crisis after admitting uh, that he'd lied during an election campaign, not disclosing the real state of the Hungarian economy. You are separate people, which I want to stress, but voters 
don't always see it that way. Do you think that that's impacted your campaign? Well, uh, I joined politics in 2019, uh, uh, leading the list of the, for the European parliamentary election. So this was the decisive moment, uh, whether uh, I can be an independent political actor or not. Um, I'm an independent political actor, although we are in the same party uh, and with very uh, common uh, goals and very uh, common um, uh, um, vision about the Hungarian uh, future. Uh, so definitely it has uh, an effect. I'm, I'm who I am. Uh, and uh, with all with, with all my uh, family and with all my, my knowledge. But I strongly believe that what I'm suggesting to Hungary, which is a so, strong social democrat program, I'm a strong social democrat. So it might affect, but I'm still fighting. Well, you are who you are. Also stating the obvious, of course, you are a woman. How long till Hungary has a woman prime minister? Well, I hope not so long. Uh, but um, you have to know that um, uh, part of this wall uh, philosophy or ideology what, what Orban put together, what is actually very close, uh, of course, to, uh, to the ideology of the far right all over the world, even if in America, uh, macho, uh, there's a very macho, very uh, male-orientated uh, political atmosphere in Hungary where female politicians are quite often humiliated even in the parliament. We have one of the lowest representation of women uh, within the European Union in the Hungarian parliament. Uh, you also come from a prominent communist family. This is something that Fidesz alludes to a lot, a grandfather who helped suppress Hungary's 1956 uprising against the Soviet Union. Your mum, your mother was also uh, very high up in the party as deputy minister of trade. Um, but do you ever feel that it's a biography that isn't necessarily appealing to many Hungarians who are demanding change and not just the exchange of one powerful family to another? Yes, this is something what I have to deal with. Uh, and uh, I have told a lot of times that especially because of my family background, especially because of my grandfather's, uh, um, uh, grandfather's role in, in the communist era, I have to be even more sensitive towards any step which is against democracy. And what I see now is that Orban is doing the same thing what the communists have done in Hungary. The same thing, one party is occupying everything. One party is changing the Hungarian constitution. Everything what happens in Hungary is in order to keep one party in power. And I feel obliged even because of my family background, even more to fight against anything like that can happen in Hungary again and against a system which is copying the communist leaders of Hungary. If I can ask you to look into the crystal ball once again, um, President Biden's described the world as being uh, in a battle between democracy and autocracy. So where does this end then for you, for where does this end then for Hungarians? What do you think it would take to turn the tides? Do you think there's the risk that Hungary could see social unrest? Well, um, the situation is, in Hungary is very uh, tragic. And it's not only about the politics that we have talked about, European Union ties, but Hungarian people are having less and less possibility to, to live a normal life. Social uh, unjust is re rising in Hungary. 
And so it had a very sad con uh, consequence that in the last 10 years, thanks to Orban's politics, almost 800,000 Hungarians went abroad to work. We lost almost one third of this population, which is the basics and the core for, uh, for Hungary. Um, and I really think uh, that the only chance to remain in the European Union, only chance to remain a democratic country or to gain back our de democracy, and the only chance to have a normal country and not a part of the Russian Empire is if we defeat Orban. Do you think Putin could make moves on Hungarian soil? That he could achieve some of his aims in Ukraine and then thinking about rolling tanks further westwards? Uh, I have to tell you, I, I, I lost already the capability to read Putin's mind because I think that the steps he was doing are simply irrational. And I think it's even more dangerous. Uh, uh, Putin himself expressed that he wants NATO to go back to the uh, 98 borders, which means even Hungary's NATO membership is questioned uh, in this uh, aspect. And I really think that uh, there should be a point where a democratic community of the world uh, shows uh, that this is and no further. Uh, the same way as I'm always telling, do not make an equivalence between Hungarian people and the Hungarian government. You should not make equivalence between Russian people and Putin's government. Uh, and I think it's, or it's an obligation not simply to protect and to help Ukraine to fight uh, Russia, but to give the possibility to the Russian people as, as well to express their own wish. And I'm definitely sure that 99% of them doesn't want a war. That's a very important point to make, though. Um, intimidation and people not being able to vocalise what they really want or what they really believe if they are worried that there'll be a personal risk to them and their families. You speak about Russia, um, Moscow, via V, what Russians actually want in terms of the invasion of Ukraine and many people not wanting that at all. But that brings me to the question, are there Hungarians who don't want Orban, who want to stand up to him, um, but are worried that they will be targeted if they do so? Are you seeing evidence of that? Do you believe that could happen a in lot. the civil society? A lot, a lot. That's when I talk about dictatorship. I can <clears throat> tell you hundreds of examples that uh, teachers are afraid uh, to talk about their experience in the school uh, because they know that they can be fired. That um, teachers are obliged to teach from a certain uh, books. That even with, during the covid uh, I think we were the only country in the world where all doctors and nurses, uh, nurses were forbidden to talk to the, about, uh, to the public what happens in the hospitals. Uh, uh, and they were punished if they talked uh, to people. Immediately when you vocalize that you are from the opposition, then the tax authority is coming after you. As politicians, I have to bear it. But a teacher, a doctor, a nurse, she or he doesn't have to bear it. Um, in all, in their, even in their small circumstances, uh, uh, um, in the circle where they live, in their city, in their, do uh, in their village. But we are facing, like with Pegasus, um, uh, illegal uh, supervision uh, of telephones, uh, telephone lines, of, of um, uh, different um, communication uh, lines. A lot of... Um, Colleagues around the politicians and mainly journalists and civil organizations were, uh, were spied. You don't have to imprison them. You don't have 
to kill them like uh, like Putin does because we have the possibility to go away. But if everyone goes away, then the country has no future. Well, Clara Dobrev, so interesting to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. A voice of the Hungarian opposition there, describing a teetering democracy. Ties between Viktor Orban and Vladimir Putin, which could run deeper than previously thought, and a climate in which journalists face espionage. Time to bring in my co-host now, the former head of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove. Sir Richard, great to see you again. How have you been? I'm very well indeed. Brilliant to hear. And there's always been plenty happening in the meantime, of course. So lots for us to talk about as ever. It never seems to really calm down, does it? Too much going on. It's uh, really a dynamic and complicated world with so many events, a lot of them rather troubling as well. Yeah, good way to put it. Um, So Richard, I want to start by picking up on my interview with Clara Dobrev, because when I spoke to her, she she when I spoke to her, she painted a picture of Viktor Orban with ever tightening ties to Vladimir Putin, which, of course, we can see for ourselves as as observers. But her question was, why grow closer to Russia when you can and when Hungary is a part of Europe? Of course, I'm pointing out the obvious here to say that there's the gas issue. But what do you think, Sir Richard, Orban's motive is here? Does he admire Putin or fear him? And to put it very simply, is he looking to emulate or placate? It's a big question with many dimensions. Uh, there's no question that, I mean, uh, Orban's been very close to Putin previously. But if you wish, I think he's now finds himself in a very difficult position. Because on the one hand, the invasion of Ukraine can hardly be approved by the Hungarian government. And he has to distance himself from that aggressive action. But at the same time, if you take a country like Hungary, and this applies to a number of the Central European countries, they have a huge energy problem as a result of the cutting off of Ukrainian, well, uh, the cutting off of Russian gas to to European supplies. So, I mean, I, I think that Orban's not going to suddenly turn around and say, look, I got this wrong. He is trying to sort of play both ends against the middle and trying to keep most of his options open. And I mean, I I do find Orban a hugely confusing political figure. I I mean, I'm I'm always fascinated by Orban because I met him originally when during his period early on when he was the first, his first prime ministership. I mean, this is going back to the early 2000s. And and I spent a couple of hours with him when I was on an official visit to Hungary as a guest of the Hungarian government. And at that point in time, of course, he seemed like a very reasonable, new, interesting politician with lots of new ideas. But of course, the way he's evolved politically in Hungary is confusing, fascinating, interesting. I mean, what was clear from spending time with it, well, he was an extremely thoughtful, intelligent person. I mean, this isn't some um, crazy guy. I mean, uh, you know, it, one, it, it, you can make all sorts of comments about someone like Trump. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't draw the comparison in a way. 
Um, I mean, Orban's clearly been a very clever and manipulative politician and has known how to exploit the whole issue of Hungarian identity. And I, I, I think that you can't sort of look at the political issue in Hungary without thinking hard about Hungary's national identity and its rather peculiar place in recent European political history, going back, of course, to the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. Um, and I mean, it's really anomalous now that you should be looking at a country which had this truly difficult relationship with the Soviet Union as Czechoslovakia did when it was invaded in 1968. And the same thing had happened to Hungary in 56. And yet, you know, now you've got a Hungarian leader who looks sympathetically towards Russia, where you think it would be the one country which most Hungarians would resent because of the role that it's played in recent Hungarian history. We used to say uh, when the US sneezes, the UK catches a cold, right? Um, so I'm interested in the direction of political influence that we're seeing right now, because as you know, we've got Viktor Orban heading to CPAC in Texas. And I wonder to what extent does it perhaps now feel and perhaps unusually that America's, and I'm saying America's here because um, I'm talking about well, Trump, I'm talking about Bolsonaro, um, are essentially looking to Europe for inspiration. Well, I think what we're seeing is a re, what I would describe as a reassertion of the identity of the nation state. So what we have accepted, let's say, as Pax Americana is no longer the determining characteristic. And you see very clearly, if you look at the Trump phenomenon, where you have a very sort of selfish uh, national identity and perspective projected by the United States. But we have to remember that this isn't new in US politics. I mean, the isolationism that is represented by some aspects of the Trump foreign policy, by some aspects of, as it were, the political right wing in the United States has been there as a strong theme in American politics right since the 19th century. And of course, we're coming up now to the midterm elections in the United States. And it looks as though the Republicans will do much, much better than the Democrats possibly win control um, of Congress. And of course, that's going to put Biden in a very, very difficult position and put Trump in a potentially powerful position running into the next presidential election. But I, I, I think where we're heading internationally, we're going back to towards a balance of power system. Um, and I'm talking historically now uh, about the period after the Congress of Vienna in the 19th century, um, where you are going to have awkward alliances of nation states um, driving the international political system in a way which is quite different from the post-war consensus after World War II. And you wonder to what extent, you know, people are trying to set up those partnerships already. Um, I'll point to an example, because in Romania, a matter of weeks ago, you'll remember that speech by Viktor Orban when his rhetoric dialed up 
I would say a notch, but it was quite significant, actually, speaking out against what he called mixed nations. Uh, there was international condemnation after that. And after that, I spoke to one professor at Princeton who has studied his speeches for a really long time. And she pointed to his upcoming CPAC appearance. And she told me that essentially she thought Orban used what she called dog whistle language to speak to Trump's base, basically trying to bet um, on a Trump return to the White House in 2024. And this was Orban kind of setting up that courting of Trump, trying to find an ally there ahead of it. Would you agree with that idea? Well, I would certainly agree with, <clears throat> yeah, I, I think that's an, an interesting and valid interpretation. I think what's so striking about someone like Orban, and I think this is relevant to the question you're asking, is the extent to which his politics are ideological. I mean, he, he clearly... Okay, he you know he violates many of the basic principles of democracy, and there's no question that you know the elections in Hungary are not fair and open in the sense that we would expect or understand in a democracy. But on the other hand, Orbán's approach to his own political identity and political future is extremely thoughtful in terms of working out an ideological base which has an appeal not only in Hungary but beyond Hungary. So I think he is searching for common ground and then you've got you know these weird ideologues like Steve Bannon who are providing some of the sort of ideological argument and justification for this type of you know political behavior and it's disconcerting. But going back to Orban and his comments focused on Trump and Trump's possible candidature for the next presidential election, I, I wonder whether he's called that right. Uh, I mean, my impression from just spending a month in the United States, or a bit less than that, um, is that Trump's unlikely to be the Republican candidate. But... Um, you know, I mean, it's it's very hard to call that at the moment. But I, I mean, he he is such a divisive figure that I think that there are enough sensible Republicans at the end of the day to say no. But you know, that's that's still some distance off. Well, what about when we talk about this direction of influence? Then other Republicans who might actually want to take a leaf out of Fidesz's book, for example. Um, if you take a look at what's been achieved in Hungary, when it comes to Orban, very often, perhaps not doing something illegal, but making something legal in order to do it, um, stacking the courts, for example. You know, is this a Hungarian model, actually, which could be very convenient for export, uh, for any other Republican candidate in the race for 2024. And just to come back to your other point about um, ideology, I wonder to what extent do you believe that Orban necessarily believes the ideological base that he's actually 
creating or is it also a marriage of convenience? It gives him something quite easy to say, to go against the European Union and say, look, the EU is against us. They are cracking down on our way of life. They're trying to cut off funding because of our values with regards to LGBTQ laws, for example, our views on migration, um, on what constitutes... um, a country with a national identity, does he believe that? Or is it something that he can put forward as a talking point to try and explain to the Hungarians why the European Union's having a hard time with him right now? Well, I'm not sure that Orban's model is exportable in quite the way that you're suggesting. I think it's applicable in Hungary and there are lots of reasons, both recent history and recent events, which, as it were, mean that Orban, despite the sort of autocracy and control, does also have a measure of popular support. Uh, And I I think European immigration or immigration into Europe has quite a lot to do with that. Um, And also, as we've discussed, the sort of energy vulnerabilities. I think when you look at the states and you you know you you mooted the possibility that the way that Orban behaves may influence some republicans i i I don't think I agree with that. I want to talk though about uh Trump and Orban when it comes to I guess they have something in common when it comes to Russia, a policy of being weaker with Russia, and I wondered. What we're seeing in Hungary, does it also embolden Russia watching this to pursue things such as further disruption of democratic processes? You know, I know, of course, that the Russians are very busy with the war in Ukraine, but I also think of Christopher Wray, the FBI director, and he said, I'm pretty confident that the Russians can walk and chew gum. You know, do we, should we expect to see Russian efforts to impact the midterms um, in terms of meddling, for example, interference? Well, this whole issue of Russian intervention using social media in the electoral process in the West, whether it was the Brexit vote in the UK or whether it was the last presidential elections. I mean, I think the tendency to do this is pretty deep in the Russian DNA, if you see what I mean, in their political DNA. Did it make a bunch of a difference? In my view, no. I'm not so sure that's the case when one gets much closer to Russia, geopolitically closer to Russia, so that their ability, let's say, to muck around with the political system in the Baltic republics, which are much smaller, weaker countries with big Russian minorities, then it's a different issue. Well, I guess whether you kind of assess that um, these attempts to disrupt democratic processes have had an impact or not, um, it's still something that continues to happen out of Russia. Um, You know, the UK has also logged um, disruption coming from Russia. And talking about the UK, of course, uh, Sir Richard, I can't let you go without asking about the runoff that we're seeing in the Conservative Party in the UK right now. Uh, Former Chancellor Rishi Sunak, current Foreign Minister Liz Truss going head to head. Um, Who do you think will prevail as the next British Prime Minister? I've got to ask you. Well, I make a confident prediction that it's going to be Liz Truss. And I think that the reason is 
this is a vote of the party membership, not of uh, MPs. Were it an election in the last stages of two candidates by Conservative MPs, I think Rishi Sunak would win. But that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at 180,000 Conservative Party members who, to an extent, are anti-establishment. And I don't mean anti-establishment in, in a radical sense. I mean they are sort of disruptive politically. And the mood in the party at the moment is strongly to the right. Uh, they feel that the sort of issues that surround Brexit, the new opportunities have not been properly exploited. Um, they are worried by uh, the sort of post-pandemic austerity. Uh, you know, there are many, many reasons which play to Liz Truss's strength. I mean, in a way, I think she's a very surprising person to have emerged. I think her strength as a future prime minister will largely depend on the team of people that are put in place around her. And I think she will be able to assemble a much, much stronger team than Rishi Sunak. All right, Sir Richard, for today, we're going to have to leave it there. But uh, as ever, thank you for taking the time. Always a pleasure to pick your brain, to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much. Helena. Wonderful talking to you and some very probing and interesting questions. That's it for this edition of One Decision. There's a new episode every Thursday, so remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.